Hey guys, welcome to week four of the James study. I'm so glad that you're still sticking with it. We only have two more sessions after this one. So I wanna encourage you guys to keep going strong. You're more than halfway there. Um, so far we've worked through the first two chapters of the book. So just to give you a quick recap, in case you missed anything, um, we talked about how in chapter one, James lays out two different paths that trials and suffering can lead us down. On the one hand, there's a path that leads to perseverance and steadfastness and spiritual wholeness when we face those trials with our faith. The other path, however, leads to temptation that when we fall into, it leads to sin and death. Um, and so then that's kind of how he sets the stage for the whole book. So then at the end of chapter one, and then also in chapter two, we see how he begins to show them the areas that they are not on that first path. Um, he addresses the fact that they're showing partiality to the rich and they're treating the poor with contempt. Um, he also throughout both chapters keeps circling back to the importance of not just hearing or knowing the word, but actually doing the word. Um, and today in chapter three, we're going to see that he keeps to the same theme and he's going to address another area that his readers were not being doers of the word. He's going to address another area that they were falling into temptation and that they needed to be pointed back to that first path. So let's read the chapter together and then we're going to start to break it down. So read with me James chapter three. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire bodies as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire." And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, at first reading, it seems like this chapter had three topics that we just read. First, we see that there's this one verse that's about not aspiring to teach. Then we see this whole section about controlling our tongues. And then finally, there's this ending section on jealousy and selfish ambition. However, I'm sure you're not surprised at this point in the study, but we're going to see how this thought process is not really three separate topics. It's a lot more fluid than it first appears. Surprise, surprise. Um, let's start by looking at verse one. James says that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
Now this verse is confusing for several reasons, so let's camp out here for a minute to be sure we really understand what James is saying. Because for one thing, we know that teaching is one of the spiritual gifts, so it's a good thing, right? It seems confusing that James is telling them not to want to become teachers. Second, James says that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness, but don't we all have the righteousness of Christ? Aren't all of our sins forgiven if we are in him? And last, why would there just be this one single verse about teaching with no explanation around it? It feels so out of place. So let's see if we can make some sense out of all of this. I think that the best place to start is by looking at what a teacher looked like in their context, because it's a little different from our own context. In your homework, I had you look at Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. In this section, Jesus is describing the scribes and the Pharisees, um, who like to be called rabbis here, and that is the role that would have been the most familiar to his audience when they think of teachers. These verses in Matthew don't paint the Pharisees and the scribes in a very good light. They're peoples whose actions just didn't match what they taught. Um, they were mostly interested in the honor and the esteem that being a Pharisee or being called a rabbi would have gotten them. Now, because the Jewish faith is the context that the original readers came out of um, before becoming Christians, the Jewish Pharisees or rabbis are what they naturally would have started to imitate as these teachers emerged in the new Christian faith. Um, remember, this was a very, very early letter. It was one of uh, probably the first epistle written out of all the epistles or all the letters in the New Testament. This was very early in the life of the church after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So they were still forming a church structure and they were still working out what different roles should look like. So scholars have noticed that the role of teacher in the early church would have been sort of equivalent to the role of rabbi in the Jewish faith. And therefore, it would have been viewed kind of with the same prestige as what people viewed rabbis in, in the Jewish faith. Now, remember what we know about the original readers, about their trials and their struggles. Were they viewed with prestige in the foreign lands that they were in? Were they respected and looked up to? No, they were aliens among foreign people. They were displaced because of persecution. They were poor. They were facing new forms of persecution in these new foreign lands. So, of course, they would be attracted to a role that would give them respect and prestige because they weren't getting that anywhere else in their culture. Of course, they would want a role that would give them a place of honor at feasts and the best seats at their religious gatherings like we saw in Matthew. Do you see how all of this would be so tempting to them? Did you catch that word, tempting? The honor and the prestige that comes with the role of teaching would have been tempting for them because of their current trials. Are you seeing it? It's the second path. It's exactly what we talked about in chapter one. Trials can either bring about steadfastness in our faith, or they can produce temptations that when pursued lead to sin and death. That's exactly what James laid out in chapter one. And we're seeing here that their particular trials and oppression caused them to feel this temptation to seek honor and esteem and to seek it in the wrong places. And teaching just happened to be an accessible way for them to do that. Now we can start to make sense out of what's happening here. James is not saying that nobody should want to be a teacher or that there's something undesirable about teaching. I mean, he says in the verse, we who teach, which shows that he himself views himself as a teacher. So he would not be saying that teaching is bad because it's something that he does. He considers himself a teacher. So teaching itself, the way that God intended teaching to happen, was not the problem. Teaching is good when it is done in a response to a calling from God, and when it is done with a desire to magnify Christ, not to magnify ourselves. They were desiring the office of teacher for what it could do for them, not for how it could glorify the Lord, and not to experience the work of the Holy Spirit working in and through them. 
As a result of this, there's a good chance that there were so many people that were trying to become teachers who were still really immature in their faith, or maybe they lacked the wisdom that they claimed to have, or they weren't living according to the truth that they taught, or maybe they didn't actually even have true faith at all. They just wanted what teaching could get them. Which leads us to the part of the verse where James says that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. What does that mean and why did he say it? Well, for one thing, in saying this, he was pointing them back to the correct place to look for approval. They were looking for approval of man in their desire to teach. And so James is reminding them in this verse that it's the approval of God that they should be worried about, not the approval of man. James has also been showing throughout this whole book the difference between true faith and empty faith. Some who wanted to teach for the wrong reasons may have lacked true faith. Not all of them, but some of them may have lacked true faith. And he wants them to know that they are going to be judged not only for their own actions and choices, but also for how they've misused a role in the church that has a huge and powerful influence over the spiritual lives of others. Because when you teach in a spiritual context, your sin has the power to bring down everybody else with you. And this is not something to take lightly. And for those people who wanted to teach who did have true faith and who were in Christ, James wanted to remind them that they're still going to have to give an account for their actions. Yes, we're forgiven, and yes, we have the righteousness of Christ to cover our sins, but the knowledge that we will be forgiven is not a license to sin or to be careless, especially in areas that influence others. Now we move on to verse two. We spent a lot of time on verse one there. So now we're going to move on to verse two. And so quickly, it almost seems like there's this change of topic because now James is going to start talking about the importance of controlling our speech. But verse two starts with the word for, which indicates that it's still connected to the previous verse. You don't make a statement and then say for and then another statement and have them be totally disconnected. So the grammar itself is telling us clearly that this is still one thought process. And if you think about it, how do teachers teach? With words, with their speech. James is warning against the pursuing the role of teacher for the wrong reasons, and now he's showing them the dangers of sinning in their words and their speech, which is something that teachers are even more at risk of doing and have greater consequences of doing it. Um, Now, if you don't consider yourself a teacher, though, that doesn't mean you just get to have a pass on this whole section. These words are for you, too. Um, This chapter, people do feel that it has some measure of emphasis towards those who teach or really more those who are wanting to teach for the wrong reasons. Um, But most of the scholars feel that this warning to control our speech is still meant for all readers. Um, Because no matter what positions of influence that we are or aren't in, our words always have a huge impact. So yes, there's there's an emphasis on these words about our speech um, being particularly important for those in positions of influence um, and wanting to take it seriously. But these words are still meant for all of us, whether we feel um, that that is us or not. Um, I don't know about all of you guys, but for me, when I think about major sins that I need to avoid or sins that I struggle with or sins that just people on a whole need to look out for and need to repent of, I really, I don't usually think of just speech in general. I think of things like selfishness and anger and pride and, um, but rarely if ever do I think of just speech and what my, my words, um, the effect that my words have. But James uses some pretty intense imagery, intense imagery in these verses. He states that our speech can set on fire the entire course of our lives. That is a pretty strong statement. If I'm honest, I definitely don't speak, think of my speech that dramatically. Are our words really that big of a deal? 
um, when I was a kid, I think I was probably like seven years old and I had a friend who was just a year old. Maybe I was six. I was young. I mean, we were like six and seven or seven and eight, something like that. And I just remember being a kid in my backyard and I started singing a song and my friend um, kind of gave me a look and said, would you stop singing? That's annoying. And, you know, it's one of those things that like she wasn't trying to be hurtful and it's something that kids just say things like that. And she probably never gave a second thought. And it wasn't a huge deal to me at the time, but for some reason it always stuck with me. Um, and I just remember um, as I grew older, always being self-conscious when I would sing around people. And it was not a big deal because I didn't really like care a whole lot about singing. I didn't want to be a singer or anything. This wasn't like a big issue for me or anything like that. But when I became a Christian um, in college, all of a sudden I was in all these environments where you have to sing around people. And probably for like the first, I mean, I'm wanting to say like maybe 10 years of being a Christian, I would often find myself just mouthing the words. Um, unless the music was really loud or I was in an environment where I just tended to feel like a lot more comfortable, but I just more often than not would just mouth the words. And I started realizing, and I, and I always had a hard time connecting to God through song. Um, and I started to realize like, I just didn't want to annoy people. Like I didn't want to be seen as that annoying person with the annoying voice. And it's so funny how something that is just a couple of words, five words spoken to me by a seven year old over 30 years ago that were not particularly, um, hurtful or damaging. They weren't like a big deal for me or anything like that. But I just realized that those five words had the power to stump my ability a little bit to worship the Lord freely through song for years. Now, I mean, I don't still mouth the words, like I've gotten over this and everything. Again, this was not like a huge big deal, but it just shows the power that words can have because those words, they did burn in my brain. And I would bet money that she probably never gave it another thought. I mean, we were just kids. It wasn't a big deal. She wasn't trying to hurt me. Um, how many of us have stories of these things that we still carry with us decades later that stem from just a passing thought said to us when we were young? I'm guessing probably all of us do to some extent. So imagine how much more damage the intentional words of an adult can do. So yes, even though we don't tend to think of our speech with this kind of gravity, our words really do wield a ton of power. And we're not the only ones who might struggle to downplay the effects of our words. James probably anticipated that his original readers would have downplayed the effects of their words too. So he gives them these three illustrations in the text to show them the power of their words. So these three illustrations that he uses. First, he uses a bit in the mouth, a mouth of a horse, which for those of you guys who aren't horse people, the bit is that metal piece that goes in the horse's mouth and it's attached to the reins. So when you're riding a horse and you kind of pull on the reins, it tugs on the bit and that's how the horse knows what you're telling them to do. Um, the second illustration is a ship and it's controlled by its rudder. And so this huge, large ship and has a very small rudder that changes its whole direction. And then the third and the last illustration he uses is a fire, which can be started by a single spark. So what all three of these illustrations have in common is that they all show how things that are very, very small in size have control over something so much larger. Our tongue may be small physically, and we might view it um, as a small thing in light of all these other sins, but James doesn't want us to be fooled by the size of our, of this. He doesn't want us to be fooled by that. He is wanting to remind us with these illustrations that small things can have huge effects. 
Um, it's also noticed that these three illustrations, they were often used a lot in literature in the ancient world, not even just in scripture, but just in the ancient world in general. These three things were used oftentimes apart, oftentimes altogether. And so this wouldn't have been um, new illustrations for his readers. He was basically using illustrations that they would have been very familiar with, um, just first of all, just with their real life um, um, scenarios, but also just in what they had encountered in other reading. Um, so he's using things that they would have already been pretty well acquainted with so that he could drive his point home pretty easily. Um, now, I don't know how this sin was playing out in the early church. Like, I don't know what the damaging things were that they were saying. I don't know um, how many people were trying to teach in this way. Um, I don't know what prompted James to include this whole section. But we can still look at our own context, um, seeing what, what is happening here. We can ask the question, how are people in our context doing this? How are people in our context looking for influence for the wrong reasons? How are people in our own context um, having uncontrolled tongues that are causing damage? I was thinking about that a lot this past couple weeks as I was preparing for this. And the thing that kept coming into my mind over and over again was social media. Um, I mean, look at this past year. It's kind of a prime example because most of our lives during the pandemic took place on social media. Um, our nation has been more divided than ever before. So I feel like James's analogy in the scripture here of, it, of a raging fire being produced by our tongue, it feels pretty spot on. Um, if you think about our country right now, whether it's politics or race or mask wearing or all these countless other things that we've all gotten really riled up about and disagree on, um, we they all started with, with words. And we can either use our words to add fuel to the fire or to help put that fire out. So what does this look like? How is this playing out? Well, think about it. We can have a few self-righteous words popped on Instagram or on Facebook, and we can um, contribute to destroying people's businesses and their livelihood and their ability to earn a living because of this whole thing called cancel culture um, and how it's kind of getting out of control a little bit. Um, I wonder if the woman at the well had owned a business, would Jesus have refused to shop at it because of her sin? Um, something to think about. What about all of these debates that people love to get into that are sparked by a single post, regardless of how well you know that person who posted it? It doesn't matter how well you know the heart of who posted it or their track record with this whole topic. You can see one post and get sucked into a huge um, Facebook battle. Um, sometimes I'll read through the comments of these posts online and I just get sick to my stomach because I know that if these same people were in a room with each other, they'd be able to disagree with so much more tact and consideration for one another. There is a place for speaking up for what we believe is right, but that doesn't mean that we can do it in a hurtful or a disrespectful way. And then what about the fact that on social media, we all love to act like we are more qualified than we really are to judge things. We like to read, there's so many jokes about how we like to read an article or two and then feel like an expert. We throw around these opinions online and in reality, we really lack the actual experience or expertise to know the intricacies of the topics that we're weighing in on. I wonder how much damage has been done by people acting like they're qualified in areas that they just really aren't. This really, to me, feels a lot like our current day version of the people who are aspiring to teach back in verse one of James. We like feeling like an expert when we really aren't. We like feeling like we know more than others. We like how it makes us look to others. We like to feel like we're making an influence in some way and that we're leaving our mark. Um, so if you think about all these examples and all these things that um, people tend to do on social media, it's good to ask. 
Do we have a track record of coming to all these divisive topics humbly? Are we coming to them as learners who are peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere? How many people in our country would describe Christians that way right now? Isn't that what James says in this chapter that true wisdom looks like? I'm afraid that that is not what we're demonstrating. And it's not just the obviously bad speech on social media that's harmful. What about the so-called good stuff on social media? How good is it really? With a few typed word each day, we can paint a picture of the best parts of our lives on Instagram and show it to the rest of the world. And it's becoming clear that when people look at posts like that, it's leading more and more to comparison and dissatisfaction and depression and worse. Does that make us stop though? No, because we like having some sense of control of how others see us. It might be worthwhile to stop and look at your social media posts and comments that you've made on other people's posts and ask, if I'm really being honest with myself, how often are the words I type written with a motivation to make much of Jesus? And how often are the words that I type written with a motivation more to make much of myself? When I first became a Christian 20 years ago, um, the the two people that stood out to me as kind of like my heroes of the faith to look up to, for lack of a better term, were um, Elizabeth Elliot and Corey Ten Boom. For those of you guys who haven't heard of them, Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary, and her husband was murdered by the people that they were trying to share Jesus with. And so then um, shortly after that, she went back to this same group of people who killed her husband with her small children. They were like toddlers at the time. And she lived with the tribe who murdered her husband, and God eventually used her to lead the tribe who killed her husband to become Christians. Um, it gives me goosebumps even just thinking about it right now. Um, and then Corrie Ten Boom, she, um, during World War II, hid Jewish people from Nazis in her home. Um, and she eventually got caught and thrown into a concentration camp. And she used her time there to lead other prisoners to Christ. They've both written amazing books that I highly, highly recommend. And do you know why I trust them and I'm so incredibly encouraged by their lives? Because their faith was proven through how they responded to their suffering. Sounds a lot like something that James would talk about. (laughs) Today, it seems like more and more people, though, are influenced by Christians online because this whole idea of influencers are becoming so popular and it's this accessible thing to pursue. And if we're not careful and if we don't look at our feeds with a lot of discernment, we can can start letting the wrong people um, influence us. Um, Think about the people that James is warning in verse 1, people who are wanting influence for the wrong reasons. Well, this whole thing of influencers is a prime way for people to seek that. And so we have to know when we are following influencers that some of them are great. There are many solid people that you definitely should follow and learn from that have Instagram accounts that are influencers. So don't hear me saying that that influencers are bad. There are great influencers. But at the same time, there are a lot of influencers out there who are not qualified to lead you spiritually. They might want to sell you a lifestyle of ease or beauty or success or comfort. They're going to sell they're going to have a feed that looks very very appealing. And it makes me think if if Elizabeth Elliot had an Instagram feed, Would it look appealing? No, her life had so much suffering, but the appealing things was not the things that happened to her in her life, but it was her faith in God. And so we have to be weary and careful of these influencers who are going to show us a picture of blessings that they've gotten from the Lord with no suffering um, because it has not been proven and we don't know their motivation. So we have to have the discernment to know who we are following and who we are letting lead us. 
Again, this is a version of verse one that how it plays out in our current culture. So more than ever, we have to be sharp in our theology so that we can discern who to listen to and who not to. Um, we might not have as many people who are wanting to teach inside of churches for personal gain, like what was happening um, in verse one here in the book of James. But I think what we see is a lot of people who are wanting to create social media platforms in order to have influence and esteems. Maybe some of us even here have felt that pull. So we need to be careful of who we are letting um, influence us. Um, okay, I've spent a lot of time here talking about the, the internet and how words spoken online can cause a lot of damage because it's so easy to overlook those words typed on a screen because they're not spoken to somebody's face. It just feels like this huge problem right now. Um, but I don't want to overlook the rest of areas that our speech can cause damage. And I think we know all of these. Um, it's just a matter of being reminded and then, and then doing something about it. Um, guys, the words that we speak to our kids matter. We can build them up. Or we can say things that will haunt them for their whole lives. Don't underestimate the power of your words. The words we speak to our spouse matter. We have more power than anyone else to make our husband feel like a man or to make him feel like a little boy by how we speak to him. How we talk to our friends matters. Your words can make someone feel heard and understood. Or they can make them feel like a complete outcast who just doesn't fit in anywhere. How we speak to strangers matters. You have no idea what's going on in someone's life or what kind of day they have had to make them act a certain way. And you have more power than you know to influence even a stranger's day in a short interaction. And especially in the areas of your life that you have a measure of influence over people in whatever way, um, or if people looked up to you for whatever reason, whether it's um, at the workplace, in your social circles, in your home, um, whatever it is, your words have an even greater measure of power. And you better make sure that your heart is set on God above all else and that your words that you speak to those you have influence over point them in some way towards the truth of who God is and not away. This is hard, guys. Verse 8 tells us that no human being can tame the tongue. But did you notice it says no human? Thank goodness that God can. Matthew 12, 34 tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words reflect what is in our hearts. And that's why we can't simply try to tame our tongue. Because we have to change our hearts for our tongue to be tamed. Only God can change our hearts. And when God does a work in our heart, and our hearts are set on him, that's going to show in how we use our speech. If you don't believe me, let's look at the next few verses, verses 9 through 12. These are, um, these are great examples that James gives us. He says that a fresh spring produces fresh water because that's what it is. It can't produce salt water too. A fig tree produces figs because that's what it is. It cannot produce olives too. A person with a heart that has tr been transformed by Jesus will produce speech that reflects that heart. But a person whose heart has not been transformed by Jesus can't. You can't produce speech that is, um, that is what James is calling us to without having our hearts transformed. And now we get to the part of the chapter where James warns against jealousy and selfish ambition, which again, seems like a new topic here because we were just talking about speech and now we're talking about jealousy and selfish ambition. But remember what we learned about verse one. In verse 1, which is the beginning of this section, they were seeking teaching roles more out of selfish ambition than out of a true calling from God. So we started with selfish ambition in the form of seeking teaching roles for the wrong reasons, and now we're kind of bookending that thought process on selfish ambition by contrasting these two types of wisdom. Because what do people who are seeking influence want to be seen as? Wise, of course. 
So let's take a minute to break down these two contrasting types of wisdom James presents his readers with. First, we have the wisdom of the world, and he says that it, he says that it is earthly and unspiritual, unspiritual and demonic. It's accompanied by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and it produces disorder in every vile practice. On the other hand, we have what James calls meekness of wisdom, which is described as wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. It is shown in our good conduct. It is full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It makes peace, and it sows a harvest of righteousness. Now, it's interesting that he calls this second type of wisdom meekness of wisdom. Why not godly wisdom or why not true wisdom? Those would have been the words that I would have probably thought of when I was describing the second wisdom. They seem kind of more obvious. But think about who he's talking to, though. He's talking to people within the church, and these people wanted to be esteemed and honored, so they were seeking teaching roles. So if you were to ask them or sell them, hey, you need to have godly wisdom, they would have said, oh, yes, of course, absolutely. I want to I want to impart godly wisdom. I want to impart true wisdom from the Lord. They would have said that and they probably believed it um, as they were trying to lead others and seek these teaching roles for the wrong reasons. But I'm guessing that they would have not so easily accepted the idea of meekness, though, because it's completely the opposite of this whole um, picture that they saw in the Jewish faith of the scribes and the Pharisees, who they would call their rabbis. Um, they Meekness is kind of the opposite of the thing that they were striving for with their selfish ambition. So meekness was the word that they needed to hear to convict their hearts, that they were only seeking to appear wise, but that their so-called wisdom was lacking in substance and did not look like the wisdom of Christ. I love these two descriptions of wisdom. What a great heart check for us to pray through. It's not enough to simply stop ourselves from saying the bad things. We don't just need to have better self-control and not say hurtful things. I mean, obviously, that's true. We should have self-control and not say hurtful things, but that's not enough. We need more than that. We need more than the absence of the bad. We need the presence of the good. Guys, if I work really hard, I could probably avoid the bad list in these verses. I could probably do a pretty good job of not saying things that reflect bitter jealousy. I could probably hide my selfish ambition pretty well. I could probably make sure that my words don't sound earthly or unspiritual or demonic. Those are things that if I tried really hard, I could probably do. That second list, though, requires a lot more than what my own strength can do. I cannot produce a harvest of righteousness in my own strength. I need the Holy Spirit to do that. I need the Holy Spirit if I want to possess a wisdom that is truly pure, that is truly peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. I'm never going to achieve that in my own strength. I might be able to do a decent job of looking like it, but it wouldn't be real. Um, For me to truly have those things, those can only come from God changing our hearts and producing them within us. I really don't think that James is giving us this chapter just to make us try harder to control our tongues. I think that James wants us to see our need for a savior. He wants us to recognize that if we're living in empty faith with the wrong kind of wisdom, that we need to turn to Jesus and have our hearts changed. Only when we're seeking Jesus and humbling ourselves before him rather than settling for just seeking to be seen as a good Christian who's important some way, Only when we're doing that other thing of seeking Jesus and humbling ourselves before him can we possess the kind of meekness of wisdom that comes from a changed heart and true faith in Christ. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you so much um, just for this reminder of what true wisdom looks like um, and, and how it's so easily confused with what the world sees as wise. And it's so tempting to want to be seen as wise in the world's eyes. Um, and it's so easy to just um, pursue um, positions of influence for the wrong reasons and just to let our words um, take people far from you instead of pointing them to you. And so, God, I just pray that you would let us all hear what we need to hear in this chapter. I pray that you would convict our hearts where they need convicting. Um, a lot of this is probably not new information. We know that we should control our tongues. We know that our words have an effect on people. But, God, we need you to change our hearts so that when we do this, it flows from a changed heart in you and not just us trying harder. Um, so God, I pray that you would let us all do some um, real digging um, as we talk and think about this and some real heart work and that you would just be changing us more and more into your image um, as we work through the book of James. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.